the military, the army, whatever, you know, I was in the army. So, um, makes these young men and women feel that they have no other option but to do this. And, you know, most of the time they just want to be listened to. They just want to feel like they're heard, but we tend to not listen to people and, you know, how can an organization, how can a, a, a unit say they value people when we are just consistently, like, making people feel that that's their only option? Like, what drives a 20-year-old kid, 20 years old, to feel that he needs to end his life? What are we doing to these kids? Welcome. To your transformation station. station. Socrates once wrote, The secret of change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. It's time to rediscover your true identity and purpose on this planet. Together, we can transform our community one topic at a time. From groundbreaking performers, making their elixir your dose of reality, your transformation arc. This is your transformation station, and this is your host, Greg Favaza. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to your transformation station. This is episode 11 where Bobby Tester and myself go into a situation. We go into a deep conversation about an experience, not just for people of the military that go through this experience, but anybody. And it's the experience, the thought process of wanting to take our own lives. We look at how does one come to this situation? How do we handle this situation? And how do we help people if we are the friend of an individual who are going through this situation? And it's a very relevant topic to talk about, especially for myself. Because I've went through this and there's a lot that needs to be said on how we can deliver this message to everybody. How to help people understand that there is always an alternative. If you have not subscribed to your transformation station, hit the subscribe button. Leave us a review. I am calling you to action to leave us a review Help us rise in the rankings. Leave us a review in Apple, Spotify, wherever you can. We need the reviews to rise in the rankings. You are helping us out. Let us know how we are doing. And email us at yourtransformationpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know how we're doing. All right, now let's get to the show. Welcome to your transformation station. I really do appreciate you taking the time for getting on the show. I remember you as an amazing leader, just knowing exactly what right is and demonstrating it properly. How did you get into this situation that you found yourself in? Um, well, I mean, we can start way back. Um, I joined the Army in August 2000 at 18 years old, and uh, I went to, you know, basic training AIT. I joined as an electrician, um, basic training AIT, and then I went to airborne school, and my first duty station was Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and that had a very, very large impact on me. I was in the 37th Engineer Battalion, and I had some leaders that literally – uh, like demanded excellence, like things just had to be right. Um, so I was there for three years and then I PCS the, the forks in Alaska and, um, I was doing electrical work up there and, and and it was a different army, right? So that's where I kind of started coming off. So I went from Fort Bragg 
uh, you know, an airborne engineer unit to Orchardton, Alaska, and it was a total culture shock. Like, I was a young E5, hard charging, kicking in doors, and that kind of behavior, that kind of mindset wasn't really accepted up there. Uh, my first sergeant had to pull me aside one day because I was in a, a guy's room and he was like, hey, we don't do that here. Okay, first sergeant, thank you. So fast forward, uh, that was 2004. Fast forward to 2005, I get deployed to Afghanistan and I meet, we had a company commander uh, that went over with us and he got relieved halfway through. And then we get a new company commander, a guy named Kim Gage. Uh, and he is the best company commander I ever had in my entire, uh, like, 18 years of service. Um, he, I was, I was the, like I said, so I was an E5, and I was running all the power distribution uh, for our FOB of about 300 people. So I was doing all the generators. I had three guys that worked for me. We did all the generators, all the maintenance. I did all the distribution boxes, all the panel boxes, um, the the Halliburton guys would come out and look at us and make sure, we, and they're like, oh, you guys got it. We're out of here. So I was eating lunch one day, and Kim Gage uh, sat down next to me, and he was like, you know, Sergeant Tester, you know, you're really smart. I was like, oh, thanks, sir, you know. I said, well, I, I, I try to be, but he's like, have you ever thought about the Green to Gold program? And I was like, no, sir, I don't even know what that is. And uh, he said, well, it's a program for young men like you to get out of the Army and get a degree and come back in as a lieutenant. And I was like, ah, well, you know, and I was like, you know, I shrugged him off. Okay, sir, thank you. You know, I'll think about it. And uh, so we went back to, uh, we redeployed, and like two years later, uh, I ended up in Iraq, and it was... June of 08, and like for three years since that, he had told me that, that had been in the back of my brain, like, okay, and then finally one day, uh, I had a great company commander there too, this guy's name is uh, Chris Klein, he's actually now, uh, well, he just finished up battalion command of the 46th Engineer Battalion at Fort Polk, uh, maybe about a year ago, uh, but anyway, so I was E6 at the time, and my whole job was I was the headquarters platoon sergeant, but we had like a convoy security thing for him because mm -hmm. we had people all over the place who would drive around. So my job, uh, aside from headquarters platoon sergeant, was to manage his convoy security team, which was three other gun trucks and all the people, and they were mine, and we, we dealt with that. So anyway, um, I had to have, because I was an E6, I couldn't sign my own ticket to get off the FOB, what they called a trip ticket. Um, E7s or above could sign them. So they gave me a brand new lieutenant, brand new, had just gotten to the unit uh, out of West Point and Bullock. And I remember asking him, Captain Klein at the time, sir, I have to have this lieutenant to sign my trip ticket. And he's like, yeah, you do. I said, what's the difference between me and her? And he's like, the college degree in about two grand a month. Wow. And I was like, that's bullshit, sir. I said, it's bullshit. And he said, yeah, it is. He said, do you want to put your packet in? I said, yes. And he's like, all right, I'll help you. So that was the final kick over, right? So then I did it and uh, put my green to gold packet in, got accepted. Uh, that I did everything in Iraq. It was very, very, like, last minute. Um, so I got accepted to St. Leo University, which is a tiny university in Central Florida. Went there for three years, um, and then I commissioned as an engineer, went to Bullock. My first duty station was Fort Richardson, Alaska, where I was a platoon leader for a rock clearance platoon when we got deployed to Afghanistan, and then I became the company XO. Leave there. Uh, I went and instructed Bullock for a while, uh, which is like engineer basic training, a lieutenant basic training, which I actually really, really enjoyed that job. Um, I, that was probably my favorite job in the Army because I got to teach these brand new lieutenants, like things that I thought mattered. Um, okay. And I've had some of them contact me and be like, hey, sir, thank you. 
Like that was really helpful. So we, we do that, you know, and I did that job for about a year and then I went to Fort Carson. Um, and I went to the brigade headquarters and that's where, you know, that was May of, of 16. I got to the brigade headquarters and then I was there until April of 18, you know, and then I became a company commander and in May of 2019, uh, that's when my, my life kind of fell apart. Well, didn't fall apart, but things kind of unfolded on me, and that's when I spent um, six days in psychiatric care. Uh, basically, I couldn't handle the stress of what was going on at the time. Um, and then I changed command in June of, of 2019. Wait, so how did, how did you end up in psychiatric care? Like, if we can go into that. Absolutely. So... Um, you know, I was doing pretty well, and I want I want to preface this with this, so you know, like this affects anybody, man. You know, I was doing pretty well. I was uh, very well respected as a company commander. Uh, very well, uh, I you know I was doing well on the OML, and, and for non-military people, um, everything in the army is about an evaluation, everything, and it's all about numbers, right? So there were thirty-seven yes. other company commanders that I was, I was competing against uh, for a good number on my evaluation report. And um, I was doing well. And in May of 26, 2019, um, you know, I had been going to counseling this, this whole time um, with, with the same counselor, and he was fantastic. Is amazing. May of 2019, we were getting a new uh, boss, a new brigade commander, and we had to do some slides. Not a big deal. Um, I was also going through change command inventories, and like they kept just changing the slides and changing them and changing them and changing them and adding to them and adding to them. And it was like a Friday, maybe the Thursday. It was right before Memorial Day. I think it might have been Thursday, actually, before Memorial Day. Um, I received an email from some folks, and it it was like, hey, we've got to add all this stuff into these slides. You company commanders are going to have a, a long weekend. And I looked at that email. And this is the first time this ever happened in my life. It, it, it terrified me. You know, I had had suicidal thoughts or flashes. You know, I, I think everybody does, right? But I'd never had, like, legitimate ideation uh, and plan. So I looked at that email, and I immediately wanted to reply, this is why people in the Army kill themselves. But I didn't, and I was just like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. So I, uh, I actually went home. I lived on post. I just left the office. I just went home. That thought, was that something that's been lingering on the back burner for some time now, and that was just the final straw? You know, it, it might have been. I honestly can't say. I think it was. You know, and I had done a pretty good job of, like, dealing with it. You know, like, hey, I got my kids with me. Um you know, and my family is always a reason that I would never do anything like that. Um, and seeing that, and, and because it had just been like adding up and adding up and adding up and adding up. And then finally they were like, oh, we need to do this. You know, I'm exaggerating a bit here. Uh, you know, 100 page slide deck. You know, I think it was actually about 20 slides per company, but. Um, that was on top of everything else we had already done. So, and then when they were just like, hey, you guys are gonna have a long weekend, you know, over Memorial Day, and they know what's going on, and it's like, that was it. I was just like, all right, this is it. Like, this is why people kill themselves. You know, you cannot manage, well, I'm not gonna say cannot. It's difficult, very, very difficult to manage that level of 
excuse me, it's difficult to manage that level of expectancy from your bosses and still do everything you're doing. So to loop back, right, I had talked earlier about the 90% product thing. So I was, I was doing 90%, right? And I was just sending them out. Um, but when you're sending out so much stuff, 90% adds up. And I won't send out a garbage product. Like, I just won't do it. If it's got my name on it, I'm going to take at least some time and put it out there, you know? So the uh, it, it, that was it. So, you know, I was like, oh, this is it. So, like I said, it actually it, it scared me a lot. So I, I just left the office. I told my first sergeant, I was like, hey, Top, I'm out of here for a little bit. Um, I went home, and uh, I got a cup of coffee. And while I was sitting there drinking my coffee real quick, um, I thought, I started thinking about, like, where my guns were. Uh, it's locked up, the keys in my, you know, in my sock drawer. Um, if I went up there and did this, though, it would be very noisy. And everybody would know immediately, and I don't want to put my kids to that trauma, right? Wait, so you're saying this is you're, you're saying you're thinking about killing yourself? Yeah, this, yeah, this is what I was thinking at the time, right? While I was sitting there at my house, drinking my cup of coffee, acting like nothing was going on, you know, because my wife's talking to me, and I'm in the kitchen. So I didn't want to do that. So I remember I had to uh, go. I was I was on all kinds of meds, man. I still am, right? I'm, I'm on like sleeping medicine, uh, mood stabilizers, you know. Some I, I'm on some some serious stuff, but I was back then too. Um, so I'd go to the hospital there on post and get my sleeping pills, mm-hmm. and they had given me a 30 day supply. I remember walking out of the hospital. And I went and sat in my truck, and I looked at the bottle of pills in my other seat, and I thought to myself, this would do it, and it'd be quiet. So I started driving back towards work, because I needed to get back to work. And halfway there, you know, I had that thought again, and... I pulled over into a parking lot, some parking lot, I don't even know where I was, and I just started crying, man. This wasn't like me, you know, and, and I always had those thoughts, but so I called my doc, my therapist, and I was like, hey, this is what's going on. I need help. What can I do? And he was like, well, said, you know, the only thing we haven't done is hospitalization, and I need you to go to the hospital. He said, they're going to admit you. I was like, all right, doc, you know, I trust you. I'm, I'm going to go. So I did go. And, you know, I got admitted. I spent six days up in, on the fifth floor of Fort Carson in psychiatric ward. Um, and it was helpful. You know, it, it was helpful. And when I came out, I'm not going to say, like, I was changed. You know, it's not like I'm switched, just flips. And that stuff goes away, but um, I was much more um, aware of my thoughts and how uh, thinking can change all that stuff, you know, and that's what's led me to where I am now, um, where I'm I'm trying to get this message out, you know, um, working on the book and, and whatnot. At that moment when you made that decision to get admitted, did you have any thoughts in your head on what might happen to your credibility in your position, but also in the people that you thought that were your friends, correction, to the people that thought you knew them as you thought you knew them, but they turned out to be somebody completely different? Oh, yeah. No, no, absolutely. So, you know, like, um, you know, so the Army has a terrible, a terrible um, thought process, 
uh, indoctrination maybe is the right word uh, about suicide because we do all suicide training, right? But it, do, it doesn't really do anything. Um, I remember thinking, and I, I know lots of people that think this way, that suicide's for cowards. You know, that's the easy way out. That's, that's a cowardly thing. But I'll tell you that when I was in the middle of that moment, I, di- I did think that. I was like, this doesn't happen. This might sound kind of bad, but I mean, this doesn't happen to officers. This doesn't happen to company commanders. You know, <laughs> we're not the guys that go in there. I'm the guy that goes and visits people at the at the floor because they're in there. Yes. You know, I'm not the guy that goes there. And that was really humbling, you know, and I've always read for years. I've read a couple, you know, I, I've read quite a bit about, like, suicide, suicide ideation and stuff because I was trying to stop it in my formation. Um, you know, I would talk to those guys two, three times a week about this stuff. And everything I've read that, you know, it can happen to anybody. And I, here I was thinking I was Captain America or Superman. You know, I had this big red S on my chest. I, it never happened to me. Oh, that won't happen to me. And I'm here to tell you, you know, it can happen to you. And one of the only thing, like the only thing that saved me, man, was calling my doc because I knew I could call him and I knew he'd pick up the phone. Like, had I not called him, I, I might have drove into oncoming traffic. I, I don't know what I would have done, man. I'll be honest with you, you know. Um, I had this thought that let me call somebody first. And maybe I was lucky because I had that thought. Um, you know, I don't know what anybody else's. moments are like that i don't know if they'll have those kind of thoughts i don't know if they have them i don't know if it's a thing um i was lucky in that moment i did have that one fleeting thought like hey call somebody first and i did and it you know it it, it saved my life so i look at the situation as i feel like in the military it shouldn't be expected as an option to kill yourself and we feel ashamed that these thoughts are going and are coming and arising in our head. And that makes us feel even worse that these thoughts that are coming up should not be coming up, which makes us feel like we're broken even more. Yep. And it just reinforces, it's like a downward spiral once these thoughts it's come. It's a vicious cycle. That's right. It's a vicious cycle. And it's difficult to get out of that. You know, um, but I really, really, really think that one person, it only takes one person and they can break that cycle for another person. Literally, if you listen to somebody, it, c- it could change their life. Just listen to them. And also, I'm, I want to look at what about the fact it can also take one person to cause those thoughts to arise. With just oh yeah oh man yes yes just with something it, it just takes one it takes one errant team leader mm-hmm. some young E five that doesn't even you know I don't know sometimes I don't even think they realize what they're doing you know and they make these young people feel like this I don't know you know I don't have an answer for that because you've got to have you know team leaders and squad leaders and stuff but. And maybe, you know, one thing the Army doesn't do, like, we do all this leadership training, but we don't do, like, how to treat people training. Empathy. Yes. Um, that, that's exactly it. We don't do empathy training. Like, and, and the problem is, you know, a, a lot of people be like, oh, this is baloney or this is bullshit or whatever, but it, it works. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you... Like, I'll be, I'll be frank. Even if you don't care, even if you don't care, if you can be empathetic to a person, it makes a world of difference. Like, yeah. if you don't like that person, you can still feel empathy for them. It just the fact of being deliberate 
with that as far like even if you if you feel like you don't have sympathy, if you were to at least try once a day to make somebody feel better about themselves. You're you're at Starbucks and some and the person is on autopilot just saying thank you. Hey, you're doing a great job. Go a long way in their growth, but also in your own personal That's growth. Right. That's right. It would. And kindness is free. Yeah. And that seems to be the hardest thing yeah. for people to grasp. Kindness is free. It doesn't take away from you at all. It doesn't take away from the person that receives it at all. It doesn't take anything to be kind to somebody. Nothing at all. Bob, I got to ask you this. When you got out of the psych ward, did any thought come through your head at the point where you feel like you are replaceable? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I absolutely, I knew, I knew that if I didn't go to work the next day, somebody would be there to do my job. You know, and that leads to, that's a whole nother realm of, of stuff because, you know, you're, you're going to be called at some point in your life to be something that only you can be. Like for me, for me personally, I can, I'm the only person that can be my kid's father and my wife's husband. But I have these other jobs, right, where if I leave or if I were to pass away in my sleep, I would be replaced. I can't be replaced as the father or husband of my, in my family, but I could have been replaced as a company commander. Um, so it's an interesting thing. You know, we trade money for time to allow us to do things, but if you trade too much time, you know, you, you don't have any to give. And when they're not, you know, nobody is ever, and I'm not saying it's to dissuade any of the listeners if they're in the military uh, from working hard, right? But, you know, nobody, the Army was never going to call down to me and say, hey, you know what, buddy? You're doing a great job. We appreciate it. <laughs> you know, they weren't going to call my desk phone and tell me that. But here I am, like, grinding. I'm talking about, like, getting after it, right? Like, 12, 14, 16-hour days, you know, for the Army. The Army, like, they're not going to call me and tell me I did a good job. Like, I'm not going to say they don't care, but maybe they're indifferent to the level of work I put in. You know, there's a set level of work that's required or expected. Anything other than that, you know, is... Um, it's good, but you've got to negotiate that with yourself, like at what cost, you know, I value family time over anything else. So when I was working, you know, till seven, eight o'clock at night, some nights, um, you know, I'd leave in the morning at, at five, get to work. And then I, I'd go home. I'd go home at lunch. I would always go home at lunch if I could. Uh, but <clears throat> getting home at 7 o'clock at night, I'm working 13, 14 hours. You know, it gets kind of old. You hold this professional status. Do you feel like you were not the person you thought you were? And how did you come about carrying yourself and moving forward after that situation? Well, you know, um, I learned real quick that I wasn't, the, you know, I had always thought that would never happen to me. Um, so I learned real quick that I was just like anybody else. And I was susceptible to these types of thoughts just like anybody else. Um, when I got out, it made me realize real quick that there are a few things that matter. And we all hold our own, you know, values of what matter to you. But ultimately, 
like the only thing that matters is making sure that like you're okay and that you're alive so you can participate in life whether you know you're a single guy or you're a married guy or gal like you've got to be alive to be there and all this other extraneous stuff doesn't matter as much as you think it does you know at at the time and, and it seems silly right but at the time the thing that pushed me over the edge when it was all said and done and I got out and I was like thinking about it looking back and I still look back on it you know it's like man you know that in the grand scheme of things that didn't really matter so um, I go through, I work with my therapist uh, on cognitive behavior therapy, and one thing we do is, because I tend to catastrophize just like you, or everything's terrible, right? But one thing we do is you take, and you think, or you write it down, I'll just think about it in the moment. On a scale of 0 to 100, with 100 being the worst thing you could ever happen to you, so like for me personally, that'd be like one of my, my wife or my children dying. Right, that'd be the worst thing that could happen to me. That's 100. And then you take whatever deal you're dealing with, whatever issue, whatever thing, and you place it on there in reality, objectively. Right? So, like, for example, when I was changing command, I thought the end of the world was going to be if I had to pay money. I didn't want to pay any money. Now, for not the non-military listeners, at the end of a uh, at the end of my old job, they look at all the equipment and they tally it up and they have to make sure that everything's there. And if something's missing, I have to pay for it. So I didn't want to pay any money, though. It's usually and 90% of the population that gets out has to end up paying. Oh, yeah, right? <laughs> but I didn't want to pay anything, you know? Uh, so I thought that was the worst thing. But when I put that against, like, somebody in my family dying on a scale of zero to 100, really, that was like maybe a 50. You know, that's not going to be the worst thing that can happen to me. I'll just pay the money and whatever. You know? Or like... By, so, so how about this? By the standards you used to judge yourself before you were admitted to now, what changed? Um, so... You know, I used to, I was trying real hard uh, before all this happened. I was trying real hard to put my family first. Um, I tried very, very, very hard to put my family first. It wasn't always easy. Um, but now I can do it with no problem. Another thing that changed was, you know, I used to get wound up about these little things that would happen at work, like I'd lose my mind. And after I came out, like after I got out, I realized that like none of it, yeah, it's inconvenient, right? Like, like a guy, just for example, um, somebody would, you know, pop out on a drug test. Well, unfortunately, like regardless of what we say, that reflects on a company commander, right? And it, it does, at least from the leadership side. So I would always, I'd get wound up, why this guy, you know, oh man. And then looking at it from the backside, like, it doesn't really matter, you know. And there was a lot of things like that, actually. Um, and once you, and once you kind of disassociate yes. from those things that are, you know, making you go into this fight or flight response, all the time but once you disassociate from those and look back and look at them and you can see them through like it's kind of like lions at a zoo man these things would eat you you know but then you get away from them you put them behind glass and you look at them and you're like that's it really like that's what was doing this to me and you just realize that they don't really matter they're not that important the change that we had to go through to be from our normal selves to this person where we're supposed to go into a battlefield if we have to, one on a, just a snap response. And it's that 
it's that mental shift that uh, the agentic shift is what it's called where your mind just automatically responds to this environment accordingly and you finally can look at it from an outside perspective and see that you are just a blind obedience. I know what you're saying, right? But I, I talked about this with my therapist too, and he helped me understand this because mm -hmm. I was like, you know, uh, when, when I was in command, the one thing I cared about more than anything else was my 96 uh, piece of American treasure. That's, the, you know, the young men and women that were below me that I was in charge of. And I worried about them day and night. Um, but I was talking to my doc and I was t talking about this, you know, like how do we make people willing to kill like this? And he was like, well, you know, it starts, it all starts with indoctrination. You know, you go through nine weeks of basic training, you wear a uniform, so there's no individuality, yes. you know, and you're, you're taught to do these things. And, but that's the way it has to be. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't come like in all the services, you know, there's a mission to do. And that's the way it has to be. And unfortunately, that mindset is is incredibly difficult to get out of, you know, once you've left military service, branch in specific. Um, you know, you... Nobody gets out of the military and loses everything that they learn. Like, everybody still has some things that they can't get around, like... I still, I still write my date military style, right? And I'm sure everybody else will do that too. But, um, you know, it, it, just stupid things like that, right? You got the 24-hour um, clock going. Yeah, well, no, no, no. I've tried to get away from that. But uh, <laughs> the, um, you know, we indoctrinate these young men and women to do what they have to do without, without deliberate thought. And you know, and, and you you know this as amateur men. That's the, that's that's a battle drill, mm -hmm. an immediate response to an out you know to an outward like stimulus that requires no action from the leader or minimal action. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we just we make people like this, and they do their four, six, eight years, you know, and then they get out or the, or the stand, you know, they do twenty years and they retire, and they all have this, and everybody has it, man. You know, you, it's difficult to get out of that mindset. You know, I would see, like, when I was going to college, um, I tried very hard to just go to college. You know, I had to do uh, Army ROTC while I was there, but that's only one day a week, and then PT and other stuff. But I tried very hard to, like, integrate in to college and not be like, Hey, I'm in the army. You know, I, listen to me, you know, which, which happens. People do it all the time, yeah. man, you know, <laughs> and, and, and that's fine if that's what you want to do, but I didn't want to do that. And, but I would see people that would do it, you know, like all the time. And they come into the classes I was in and they were like, I was a Marine, you know, why? It's just like, okay, man, like, we're not there anymore. I had a buddy in college, man. Dude was a Marine, uh, and he would get so upset by these college kids. And I, like, I'd tell him, like, dude, they're it's a nineteen year old kid, man. What are you getting upset about? Like, they're not Marines. They're not, you know, they, they just left the house. They don't even know how to wash clothes. I bet, you know, <laughs> like you can't. You got to choose. And you, you know what? This is one thing I did learn after my time. In, in the psych ward was you have to choose what you get angry about. Where do you spend your anger? Because it's, it's currency, man. This is your transformation station with your host, Greg Favaza. So, I mean, Greg, you know, I had a boss tell me one time and I've gone by this for my whole life. So people will often say that they don't have, they don't have any fucks to give, but my boss would say, no, no, no. You've probably got about three, you get about three and you got to figure out where to spend them. So I used to always tell my first sergeant, she'd get wound up. I'd be like, Hey, 
I'm not giving one of my three fucks today. Not about this. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not worth it. And I'm like, your, your upsetness, your, that's not the right word, but, <laughs> you know, your emotional state yes. is, is currency. You've only got so much. It's just like Malcolm Gladwell talks about, you can only make so many decisions in a day. I'm a firm believer, and I don't know if this is scientific-based, but that you've only got so much emotion to put out. And whether that be anger or joy or happiness or indifference, you know, you got to figure out where you want to spend it, man. And is getting upset over this where you want to spend it. You know, it could be anything. If you're driving down the road and you get a flat tire, right, is this where you want to spend your emotion? You know, do you want to get super upset about this and, you know, this is the end of the world? Or is this just a mild inconvenience, you know, in what you got going? Definitely having a positive outlook on life and maintaining that positive outlook when things do go bad and not in your favor. It, it sounds like it's raining over there. When things do not... It is. <laughs> but let's, let's go back. We definitely fell off the beaten path here a little bit. For those that are thinking about taking their life, what about those who are the friend of that individual? How can we inform them to recognize that something's happening and what can they do about it in their own power? So the first thing I would tell you is that if somebody calls you out of the blue, Pick up the phone. If, if you get a call from somebody and you don't, like, and it's someone you haven't talked to in a while, or even if it is someone you've talked to, and I know that in the age of text and Snapchat and TikTok, we don't really like to talk on the phone so much. We'd rather text. I'd rather text somebody because it's less, it's more convenient because I don't have to, like, stop what I'm doing with my family, right? But I'll tell you right now, if somebody calls me on the phone, I'm picking up because you don't know. That could be the moment for that person. So the worst thing that could happen, if you pick up the phone, like the worst thing that could happen would be they are there, you know, whatever they're going to do, and they're having that thought, right? And they just need someone to talk to. And, you know, the best thing that could happen really would be they just want to talk to you. It might be mildly inconvenient because you picked up the phone and now you got to spend 30 minutes on the phone with somebody. But... That's way better than not picking up the phone and then finding out three days later, you know, that they took their life. So, if, you know, if you get that call, most people just want somebody to listen to them. Don't try to explain to them that you've been in the same situation, right? You know, we tend to do that, right? So we, as humans tend to do that to relate to the person, but as you're that person, it really feels like they're just minimizing, you know, your issues. Um, so, you know, like if you get the call, don't, don't go, don't, you know, my uncle one time thought about, you know, taking his life too, and this is what we did. Just listen to the person, offer advice. You know, if they ask for it, help them out. Be supportive. You know, um, try to steer them toward any kind of um, resources that might be available. You know, um, Army One Source has resources. Uh, local 911 has resources. Um, Local hospitals will help you. You know, they're out there. People just have to use them, you know. Or if the person doesn't want to do that, maybe develop some type of buddy check-in. You could even do it by text. Like, hey, man, text me in 12 hours. And if you don't get a text from them, call them, you know. But you got to keep it up, at least for a little while, so you can, like, talk to them and see they're better. Maybe encourage them to go do something, you know. But you got to pick up the phone. So I talked earlier about making the list of people you can call. 
Well, when you're making that list and you put these people down, you need to call them. And this is going to be a very uncomfortable talk, but you got to have it. You need to call them and be like, hey, I put you down on my list as someone I could call if I ever think about committing suicide. And that's going to be a difficult talk, right? Mm-hmm. But you got to have it. Like, call them and tell them. And for people that don't even think, like, for people that aren't even having these thoughts, right, this is all just preventive. But it could save your life one day. You know? So if you get a call from somebody or somebody comes to your house, you know, it, the main thing you can do, the main thing you can do is just listen to them and be supportive. And don't try to minimize their thoughts. All right? Don't play it off. Take it seriously uh, and, and listen and just be supportive of them and help them through the situation they're going through because you don't know what's going on. I would tell my guys at work all the time, all the time, tell my company every time I saw them in formation, people have two faces. They have a work face and they have a home face. Yeah. The work face is usually way different than the home face because you don't know what's going on at home. We don't know what's going on, you know, and normally we don't learn what's going on until it's too late and there's nothing we can do about it. That's what your book is all about. That's right. That's right. Have a plan because we don't talk about it. You know, we say, oh, call somebody or whatever, but it's kind of lip service where if you were to physically write down three to four people and their phone numbers, like write it down on a piece of paper. Not keep it in your phone. If you can put them in your phone, that's great. But you need to physically write down three to four people, and you can put them in an order of preference or, you know, whatever, or just random alphabetical order. But write them out, write their phone number, and then you need to write on on that paper, like, I will call these people. Mm-hmm. And you can fold that paper up, and you can put it in your pocket, you can put it in your wallet, you can put it in a drawer. You can throw it away if you really wanted to. But I really feel... That the act of doing that, you know, that's part of the plan. That act of making a plan, at least putting that those words and thoughts onto paper, will make you stop for a moment and think through it. You know, no great military general has ever won a battle without a plan. Um, nothing is built without a plan. Um, you know. SpaceX's rockets that are flying right now, I'll go back to Elon Musk, they've got blueprints. They're built by the plan. And they don't deviate from them. So when you get in a moment like that, if you've got your written down plan, hopefully, you know, it, it'll help you and you won't deviate from it. I mean, you can include other things on there too, like places you could go, things you could do, you know, if you get to feeling like that, you know, play with your kids or walk, take a walk outside or go for a run. And I know in the heat of the moment, that's like the last thing you're going to want to do. But maybe if you think about it and go out there and do these things, it at least help you get some clarity, you know, in, in the middle of, of your terrible, terrible time. That's a very dark time to be in, you know. There has to be – you must have came in contact with a couple people where they – actually wanted to help you and see how you're doing versus other people that would just generally ask to see how you're doing to make conversation or to get information to get, Oh, well, let me figure out what he was doing in there. Cause I know him get like the inside scoop. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, when I, when I, when I got out, uh, I, I left Fort Carson in October of 2019, and then um, my, old, my old first sergeant, I talked to her about once every two weeks just, just to talk, check on each other. So she's one of the people that truly cares, like, what's going on with me and my family, right? Um, I've got one or two other friends that will call us, and they, and they truly do care. Um, you know, I haven't really had anybody else call me or text me. Uh, they would go to my, they would go to my old first sergeant and they would ask her like, Hey, how's, how's he doing? And she would tell them every time you've got his phone number, call him. It's not my place to tell his business. And I've had one of my old friends 
well, not, I mean, not that old, but I've had one of the friends I made there at Fort Carson, a fellow company commander, check up on me one time. You know, and now on on that note, I haven't I haven't reached out to any of those guys either. You know, and I think there's a misconception though that like once you get out, everything's okay. So like, I know I used to think this right when somebody got out, I'd be like, oh, they're living the life. Like, yeah. it's peaches and cream over there, you know, and then you don't want to bother them, kind of. You don't want to bother them because, you know, they're having a great life. But in reality, sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's the complete opposite. And you get, you know, you come out of your military service and you realize nobody cares, you know? You know, you're no longer, you know, your military service is over, mm-hmm. right? I can't put my uniform on and go to the local supermarket and have people, you know, recognize me. Or I can't put, you know, I can't put my uniform on and go, and you know, to the, to the, uh, the like the Air Force base down the road from me and be, you know, like, get the same kind of recognition I did because, and and that's part of it, right? We all, we do crave the respect we get in the army and the military hierarchical hierarchy. You know, that (laughs) system, the rank system is there for a reason, you know, and you get used to that, right? So like, um, you get used to being treated a certain way if we're being honest. And then when you get out, eh, you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Nobody cares. Like nobody looks at my, you know, nobody's going to check your retired ID card and be like, oh, hey, sir, how are you doing? You know, like, <laughs> it doesn't matter. And that's a very, very, very difficult transition to make because for your whole military, you know, like you're, this you've got the uniform like you're this you're in it you're doing it and then when you get out you're not doing it anymore and now you're just you know greg favaza or bob tester you know like ah well okay my dad told me that that was the first thing he told me as far as when i first left for basic training he told me don't be a hero 20 years from now Nobody's not, nobody's going to give a shit. And I'm like, are you kidding me? No, no, I, I didn't, I didn't understand that at the time. I'm like, that just seems like a very pogue response. <laughs> let me, let me correct that. But that just seems like a, a pessimistic response or something. And after getting out and experiencing that, it, it makes so much sense. It's like nobody, they don't really care. And, and I'm okay with that because it's all based off that mindset that we have developed to be who we are in, in that system of the military. And it is difficult. It, it's really interesting because I talked with uh, Son Lopez. It's in episode one, and he's incorporating an amazing system. And it's, and it's similar to what you're saying as far as having a plan. Forcing the plan, per se, as far as helping the soldiers get on, well, veterans get on their feet, find a place to live, making sure they have everything they need, finding a job, and then having an accountability buddy to ensure that they are doing the job properly, learning about the job. It, it goes into great details with veterans. I believe you two could really hit it off and see what you guys can do. That'd be good. That'd be good. Because, you know, the other thing is this. When you get out, so, you know, when, when you're in the military, uh, branch in specific, there's always a mission. There's always a thing. You're, like, always working towards a thing, right? Whatever that is. And then once that's over, it's the next thing, whether that's, you know, raiding an airfield or building an tank ditch or getting a convoy of, you know, supplies somewhere or, you know, whatever it is. But there's always a thing. And then you get done with that, and there's another thing. But when we get out, there's no more thing. 
And nobody's telling you, hey, go do this. Now you're on your own volition, right? So if you don't like your situation, and, and I'm, I am guilty of this, man. When I was in the Army, if the Army sent me somewhere I didn't want to go, I would shake my fist. Oh, dang Army, you know, I don't want to be here. But now I've moved somewhere I don't really want to be, but I can't blame the Army. You know, it's just me. So the thing is this, though. There's a huge difference here between when you're in the Army and when you're out is that if you don't like something, you can change it. You can just change it, right? And it might not be that easy. It's just change it. But you do have the option. You have the opportunity to do what you would like to do. Um, you know, the, the problem is, though, there is no thing. There's no external force telling you what you have to do. And that while we all say we didn't like that, secretly, I firmly believe that we all crave that because it's easy. It's easy. The Army says do this, and I just go do it. It's easy, right? I don't have to uh, command my own ship, if you will. Um, so when we get out, you've got to find a purpose. Like, if you can find a purpose, whatever that is, whatever you want to do, if you want to go to school and learn to bake, you want to go be an auto mechanic, or if you want to go work at a veteran, you know, uh, nonprofit shelter, you just got to find something to put your energy in or else you're going to, you're not going to do anything. You know, people, I'm, I'm guilty of it. You know, it's taken me dang near 10 months to get my act together where, you know, I was just not doing anything. Like I was like, Oh, I, I deserve this, you know? And I wanted to take like three or four months off. Well, that turned into six and then, well, COVID-19 hit and here we are, but you know, Regardless, you've got to find something to put your time into, whether it be a hobby or a job or, you know, something. Because if you don't, you have all this energy, you have all this drive that you've had for years and there's nowhere to place it and it's going to be misplaced. And for some people, it goes terribly. They end up as alcoholics. They end up into illicit drugs. You know, and, and we don't want that. That stuff tends to, tends to, not always, lead to um, difficult things for people, you know, whether that be money-wise, family-wise, emotionally. And sometimes it leads down the rabbit hole and these folks end up taking their own lives. You know, got to find a purpose. And, you know, you've got to find something to do. I got some final questions to ask you. What life-altering things should every human ideally get to experience at least once in their lives? Uh, personally, for me, uh, I think everybody should jump out of an airplane once. I spent <laughs> a good portion of my life uh, jumping out of airplanes for the Army. Uh, it's really something. You know, I tell you, you don't look at things the same uh, anymore. It, it kind of changes the way you look at things. Um, when you... Uh, I'm not going to say that you take your life in your own hands, but when you tempt fate, if you will, you know, um, beyond what a lot of folks do, it kind of changes the way you look at things. That's, that's interesting because my philosophy is to embrace my authentic self and to be vulnerable in every situation. So by jumping out of an airplane, you are... I mean, pretty much trusting your life to a shoot. Hopefully that was put together, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> that, that is, that's very interesting. What is the most important goal everyone should have or at least strive for? Um, you know, I personally believe that every person should get some kind of post-secondary education. Um, after high school, whether that be like a Votech or a technical school or, uh, you know, um, YO Tech or UTI for mechanics or go to college, I, I, you need to have some kind of additional education in order to get a decent job, which will then in turn allow you to provide for not only yourself, but your family eventually. What is your definition of success and how do you think the best way not just for you, but for those that are listening, 
the best way for them and yourself to attain it. <laughs> okay. So Greg, I, um, I'm a firm believer that we all define our own success. It's not a mark on the wall that can just be arbitrarily placed for everybody. Okay. We all define our own. Um, somebody told me that one time and it had stuck with me because, you know, if you, you know, everybody has dreams when they're young people, young men and women coming up. And if you don't reach those, does that mean that you weren't a success? Not necessarily. You know, if you wanted to be a veterinarian, okay, but you got through your bachelor's degree and then, you know, you met somebody and you started a family and you never made it back to vet school, but you've got a small, you know, a nice little family and you've got a good job and you're taking care of your kids and your wife. Or your husband, if it's you know, if, if you're the woman, is that success? To me, that's success. You know, just because you didn't come become a vet, does that mean you're not successful? I don't think so. It just means you diverted your definition of success. You know, um, if you always wanted a car, you know, for some people this is a big deal. You know, if you always wanted a certain car when you're growing up and then you get it, you know, when you're like 35, that's success. You know, um, I don't think we can just place that definition wherever. I think it's up to each person. But for me personally, um, success is taking care of my family, um, effectively, you know, that's, that's the most important thing to me. And that's how I think I'm successful by trying to be a good dad and a good husband. Uh, inside my family. I like that. I have one last question. And this one has been like inside me for a long time to actually ask a military officer and a military officer who has experienced both sides of the fence as far as enlisted and uh, commission. Yes. Yeah, commission. Yeah, there yeah. we go. I, I got it. <laughs> shaking off the cobwebs. But is intelligence or wisdom, which is more useful? Hmm. Well, you know, I think that for me it would be wisdom because I think that everybody has an innate level of intelligence and that can be fostered, you know, that can be grown rather quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but wisdom doesn't come quickly, if that makes sense. You know, that's formed over years of your life um, and experiences and just a general, you can have a calm like demeanor and have some wisdom too, but if you haven't met, had experiences to see how things play out and uh, participated in other activities, you, you know, you won't have a level of wisdom. It's very difficult. I, I don't know that you can grow wisdom quickly as you can go up, grow intelligence. Anybody can become intelligent, I think. Um, it just takes a little bit of time. No, that makes a lot of sense. As far as when I became a sergeant, I never thought I was even capable of handling that position. But in time, I realized it was a developmental role. And I became the person that I wanted to be by just living in the standard that I thought I seen a sergeant uphold themselves to. And the, the wisdom is the trial and error that we are able to incorporate in our thought process when we experience a similar situation through pattern recognition. I, I completely agree. That's, it's, it, that's an amazing. Okay. I, I literally got lost. Like I just kept diving. I kept going deeper and deeper. It's like, I'm like talking to myself in my head. It's like, yes, Greg, continue. What are you saying now? <laughs> it, like, I, like, I'm not going to lie. I started having a conversation with myself in my own head. <laughs> but, uh, Bobby, I really do appreciate you coming on the show. Is there anything I didn't get to actually ask you that you want to address? Uh, the last thing I'd like to say to listeners, Greg, is like, no matter what, you matter. 
okay? Everybody has intrinsic value. You matter to somebody. Somebody cares about you. So if you ever get in a situation where you don't think anybody cares, you're thinking about, you know, maybe uh, taking your own life, somebody cares about you, all right? I promise you, someone cares. Now, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, so my email address is robert.tester, uh, the numeral one. So robert.tester1 at gmail.com. I'm on LinkedIn at Robert Tester uh, PMP. So you guys can hit me on there. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm still working on my book. Once we get it finished, I'll hopefully get a website up and running, and then you can find me on there. I'm also on social media, Instagram and Facebook, uh, if you guys wanted to add me as well. Thank you, Bobby. I really do appreciate your time again. You're doing great things, buddy. Greg, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Your Transformation Station. Rediscovering your true identity and purpose on this planet. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you've gotten some useful and practical information. Join us weekly on Monday for the YTS Challenge, and bi-weekly on Wednesday for the exclusive interviews at 8 p.m. Central Time. In the meantime, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at YTS The Podcast. We'll be back soon. Until then, this is your transformation station, signing off.